Hello, friend. Thanks so much for downloading this podcast. And with all my heart, I hope you hear something that edifies, encourages, equip, enlightens, and then engages you in the marketplace of ideas. But before you go and before you listen, I want to take a quick moment and explain to you this month's truth tool. The book is called I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith. You know, it's paramount as followers of Christ that we not only know what we believe, but why we believe it. So questions like heaven and hell, angels, the Trinity, all of these are foundational issues for believing Christians. But sometimes we don't fully understand what it is we believe about Christianity. So the book, I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith is just that. It's concise And it's a wonderful guide to explain to you the cornerstones of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. It's yours for a gift of any amount because In the Market with Janet Parshall is a listener-supported broadcast. We stay on the air because you pray and give. So if you'd like this month's Truth Rule, just call 877-JANET-58. Ask for a copy of I Believe. That's 877-JANET-58. Or you can go online to InTheMarketWithJanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. If a gift of any amount, we'll send it to you as our way of saying thank you. While you're on that website, you might want to take a moment, scroll down just a little bit farther, and there's a description of what it means to be a partial partner. These are people who give at a level of their own choosing, and they give every month. They get the truth tool if they ask for it every single month, and they'll also get a newsletter, only people that do, that includes an audio portion that only goes to my partial partners. So if you want to be a partial partner or you're just interested in giving one time to get a copy of I Believe, 877-JANET-58 is the route to go, 877-JANET-58, or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. I Believe, a great book for you to put in your backpack as you continue your Pilgrim's Progress. Now, Please enjoy the podcast. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely rare safety move by a nation. 17 years the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall, a very happy Monday to you. I'm so glad you're going to spend the hour with us. My daughter Sarah is going to join us, and we're going to take a look at some of the legislative and legal issues that are impacting our culture and how we as Christians need to take a look at these particular issues. But I'm going to start the way I have since October 7th. We're going to take a look at what's going on in Israel. We're going to turn to our friends at CBN News, and this time Julie Stahl files the report. Have a listen. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is making it clear Israel must continue its battle in Gaza until it achieves total victory. We must not stop the war until we complete all its objectives. The elimination of Hamas, the return of all our hostages, and the promise that Gaza won't pose a threat to Israel anymore. Over the weekend, IDF spokesman Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari explained some of the challenges of the war in a briefing to the nation. He says one of the main goals is dismantling Hamas. Hamas battalions use a complex underground system with infrastructure to manufacture weapons, war rooms, command and control centers, and the capability to launch rockets from above and below ground. The terrorists move between different areas in the Gaza Strip using this infrastructure, allowing them to do so covertly. Hagari said there are five objectives eliminating Hamas commanders, ground combat against the terrorists, gather intelligence from computers, maps, communication devices, 
locate and destroy rockets, weapons, and sites where they are manufactured, and destroy the underground infrastructure. This is the Gaza Strip. It covers 365 square kilometers and its population is over 2 million people. This is the northern Gaza Strip, where we began our ground operation and have been fighting for the past three months. In the northern Gaza Strip, Hamas had two military brigades with 12 battalions in total, consisting of about 14,000 terrorists total. He said Israel has accomplished its goals in northern Gaza and is now turning its attention to southern Gaza. Israeli troops located a 320-foot-long strategic tunnel shaft leading to a weapons production site. The IDF says their forces found proof that under Iranian guidance, Hamas terrorists learned how to operate and build precise components and strategic weapons and gain technological knowledge in the field. They shared images of what they said was a rocket engine and a Hamas-developed warhead of a cruise missile. And Hamas wants its ideology passed along to the next generation. In an interview with NBC's Meet the Press, Israeli President Isaac Herzog revealed the discovery of a document detailing Hamas's plan to host and train children in summer camps to hate Jews, promote religious extremism and violence, and make them the terrorists of the next generation. It's a brochure, which is a directive by the commanders of Hamas as to how to manage summer camps for children in order to disseminate the values of jihad. It says it clearly, to disseminate the values of jihad and the values of the resistance, meaning terror, and how to make it a militarized society. And U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has been traveling throughout the Middle East before arriving in Israel. He's expected to press for a shift to lower intensity fighting as he warns that the fighting could spread beyond Gaza. Israel is indeed warning of another war in the north as Hezbollah marked the three-month anniversary of the war by stepping up its attacks. Israel retaliated, striking what it called significant Hezbollah military assets in a compound used by Hezbollah's surface-to-air missile unit. And a Lebanese security official says an Israeli airstrike has killed a senior Hezbollah commander in southern Lebanon as the fighting near the border heats up. Julie Stahl, CBN News, Jerusalem. Particularly disconcerting in Julie's report is the idea that children have to be taught hate. And that really and truly is an important point for us as followers of Jesus Christ. So the fingerprinting of this hatred toward the Jews, that they should be driven into the sea, from the river to the sea, that is the chant so many of these protest groups are saying. And what that really means is genocide. The river, of course, is the Jordan River. The sea is the Mediterranean. And what they're saying is that the Jewish state has no right whatsoever to exist, so we must simply drive them out completely. Now, you have to start teaching a child at a very early age to hate. The antidote to that is Jesus Christ. What a privilege I have had over the years to talk to people who were trained as terrorists by terrorist groups in Gaza who have turned their life around when they had an encounter with the Jewish Messiah, when they understood that Yeshua is the long-waited-for Messiah who takes away the sins of the world. And when that happens, not only is your heart transformed, but your mind is renewed. And now there is this marvelous connection between Palestinian believers, those who come to faith in Christ, and Jewish believers. They understand that persecution will break out someday, and they've already had conversations, these groups together, on where they will go together 
to try to outdistance themselves from the coming persecution against believers in that part of the land. Closer to home, persecution breaks out in a different kind of way. A total of 325 anti-Israel protesters were arrested after cutting off traffic in and out of Manhattan. Oy vey! They barricaded the Brooklyn Bridge, the Manhattan Bridge, the Williamsburg Bridge, and the Holland Tunnel. Now, I told you before Christmas, they blocked the entrance into Chicago's O'Hare Airport. New Year's, they blocked the entrance into JFK Airport. Now they've decided to literally expand their take-it-to-the-street campaign, and they think somehow causing tortious interference, if I can put it that way, in the everyday happenings of Americans, that somehow they're going to get the president to change his mind, to get Netanyahu to change his mind? Who exactly is their target audience for protests here other than being a pain in the neck? So police officers at the Brooklyn Bridge started unlinking the pro-Palestinian demonstrators who had strapped their arms together with metal tubes, concrete, and tires. By the way, they are being trained in all of this. Don't think for one minute they met in somebody's family room and said, hey, let's do this at the Holland Tunnel. It's not happening that way, friends. They're funded by Marxist organizations who absolutely don't have a sense of history and a marked sense of anti-Semitism. So 325 people arrested today in New York, causing a major hang-up right over rush hour in New York City. Wow, unbelievable. But it's not going to be too bad when it's all said and done, and this is why they keep doing it. In lieu of summons, many protesters simply face misdemeanor charges with a desk appearance ticket. In other words equivalent of a traffic ticket. Tell that to the people who couldn't get to work in New York. When we come back, roll up your sleeves, put on your thinking cap, learn how to think critically and biblically as my daughter joins us and we take a look at Lady Justice. Back after this. Who is God? Why am I here? How should I live? Could you find the answer to those crucial questions from God's Word? That's why I've chosen I Believe as this month's truth tool. Learn the essentials of our faith in a clear and succinct way. Ask for your copy of I Believe when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. Or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. My daughter, Sarah Partial Perry, is a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Very, very proud of the work that she does. Really gives all of her legal and academic acumen to doing a lot of analysis on what's before the courts and really applying the philosophy of law to some of the public policy issues that are out there. And there's no shortage of issues to what she can apply. Testified recently on Capitol Hill. We aired some of that on this program as well, dealing particularly with some of the proposed changes by this current administration dealing with Title IX, which I think is a good place for us to start. Sarah, the warmest of welcomes. You know how much I love spending time with you both on and off the air. But I want to talk about Pending certs, that's a shorthand law talk for cases that are petitioning for writ of certiorari before the high court. Thousands are done every year, only a few hundred are taken. But there are two pending right now, and one of them does, in fact, deal with Title IX. What's up? You know, this is uh, finally, I think, the vehicle that we've been waiting for for a long time. So there are quite 
a number of cases pending before the Supreme Court, but one of them specifically goes to the question of whether or not Title IX, which everyone, of course, thinks is the sports law, but really what it does is prevent sex discrimination in any education program that receives federal money in the United States. So it's going to ask whether or not that separation of men and women, biologically distinct individuals by bathrooms, locker rooms, housing accommodations, and sports is discriminatory. Now, of course, a law that's supposed to prevent sex discrimination does not seem to be discriminatory on its face. Common sense would tell us that. But for the past three years, we've seen government expand the definition from sex to include gender identity. That has had a trickle-down effect on everything from healthcare to schools to reduced school lunch programs to prisons, domestic abuse shelters. And so a good portion of what I do now is write on gender identity and how the courts are curbing those expanding definitions. But this one particular case will finally ask the question I think many of us in this space have been wondering, can you separate men and women in education where appropriate? appropriate, or is that a violation of the Constitution? That's a big case. Wow. So let me linger here a little bit because I want to try to figure out why the court would have picked this one. Obviously, this is a cultural tsunami, and it's swirling around at the local level, at the federal level as well. What was it about this case in particular, do you think, that caused the court to grant writ? You know, it's interesting. They are still determining, and it's been set for conference, which is just a fancy way of saying it's when all the justices get together and they determine whether or not they're going to take it up. They have not yet determined if they're going to grant cert, but my instinct, my hunch is that they probably will. And that's because we've seen so much litigation across the country on the Title IX issue. We've seen cases in the 6th, the 11th, the 2nd Circuit, for example. That's Selena Sewell's case against the Connecticut Athletic Association. And this one is just, I believe, a ripe vehicle for them to finally say, "Okay, listen, we have splits in federal courts. We have states trying to legislate and pass fairness in women's sports laws. States have an interest in protecting the rights of young women and girls. And I think at this point, the Supreme Court has essentially put off the question to long. So while they haven't officially granted cert yet, I think this is the appropriate case for them to do so. Mm, Wow. So let me just drop in a cultural context for this, which I find interesting. It's 2024. The summer games are going to be held in Paris this year. So it'll be the 2024 Olympics in Paris. And I find it very interesting because the Olympics are all over the board. (laughs) I'm laughing because (laughs) this is the first time that break dancing is going to be an official competitive sport. This I don't get at all, but I digress. Nope. So let's just talk about transgender athletes. Apparently, they're going to face some increased restrictions ahead of the games compared to previous rules. In other words, they're moving to more conservative, not more open policy, which I find encouraging, but they're basing it on science. It's been decided that this the trans athlete has to have completed his or her transition before the age of 12 to avoid unfair advantages. <laughs> so flesh that out, Sarah. Why is 12 significant? 
Well, that is the age at which most pubertal developments begin to sort of arise and separate themselves, right? So again, being the parent of three teenagers, you know, boys are stinky. They start to sort of develop those hormonal advantages, the muscular physiological advantages at the age of 12 that cannot be undone. And in fact, longitudinal data studying whether or not those athletic advantages are present in early ages. We were told initially it was only just high school. It was only just college. Oh, no, we are learning that as early as 11 and 12. Those biological distinctions begin to express themselves essentially not just through hormones, but in greater muscle mass and more bone density, faster speed, greater muscle twitch response. And so I think the International Olympic Committee thinks they are sort of splitting the hair here by saying, okay, if we get to a point where we at least say, all right, it's got to be done before the age of 12, then we're okay. Well, I have news for you. You can't completely remove and then superimpose or inject one hormone over another hormone. So in other mm -hmm. words, a male will always have male hormones. He will always think like a male. He will always behave like a male, regardless of whatever cross-sex hormones he receives, whether that's estrogen, whether that's uh, progesterone, whether they are puberty blockers, which are also known, by the way, as chemical castrators. These drugs are used for sex offenders in federal prison to completely eliminate their sexual urges and to keep them safe from the population. But the fact of the matter is they've tried to come as close to the line of fairness as possible without actually admitting boys and girls, even at 12, are different and have different advantages. Wow. So this is the reason why they've moved. The Olympic Committee has moved in the right direction. So a person whose last name was Hubbard, a man identifying as a woman, was a weightlifter from New Zealand. In fact, the first openly transgender athlete to compete at the Olympic Games. Three years ago at Tokyo 2020, it was actually held in 2021 due to COVID, this person made history as the first openly transgender athlete to compete at the Olympics because of this new rule. Sorry, she didn't transition. He didn't transition before 12. Won't be able to compete. Back after this. Marshall Perry is with us. If that name sounds a little familiar, that's because her daddy and I gave it to her. She's a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, and we're taking a look at some of the important legal and legislative issues out there that impact our families and how we should be thinking and acting regarding some of these crucial issues that at its core are biblical. By the way, they masquerade in justice robes. They put on the suit of a legislator, but in reality, they're biblical issues, male and female he created them both. So this is trying to usurp the Genesis mandate, by the way. So don't ever forget this. This isn't politics. It has some semblance of public policy. But at its core, this is very much of a spiritual issue. So let me leave the steps of the high court for a minute and come back home closer to home. So in this ambiguous era where there are some very radical proposals out of this administration regarding Title IX, that's why you testified on the Hill, you talked about the fact that they're not only problematic, they're probably illegal and that a plethora yeah. of lawsuits will be filed should these changes be put into place. But the way this works, there's a comment period. And apparently they almost broke down the machine for people coming in with so many comments. But where are we on that process? And then tell me 
how this is playing out now at local schools, particularly because kids are filling out their college applications now. They're this, we shift to the winter sports, people who are now focusing on trying to get scholastic dollars, they're really focusing in right now. So there's a very pragmatic application to all of this. So first start with where we are on the assembly line of the changes to Title IX right now under this administration. Yeah, so this is taking place according to what's called a rulemaking process. And that means that every executive agency in the country has to undergo a particular process under what's known as the Administrative Procedure Act. And the theory is we want our government agencies to create new rules transparently. And we want the public to be able to weigh in and let the bureaucrats who are sitting in Washington know exactly how we feel because we have skin in this particular game. And for Title IX, remember, this applies to any educational program in the country. That includes 4-H. Anything that is in receipt of so much as a dollar of federal assistance is subject to Title IX. Well, Title IX is very simple. You can't discriminate on the basis of sex. It was designed in 1972 to level the playing field for men and women. But now what this administration has done has said essentially, well, sex also includes gender identity and sexual orientation. Well, you can't square, you can't square the circle on <laughs> sex and gender identity. They are two different things. So you can imagine what it means when the administration has said, we have two rules coming and one is going to allow biological men to compete in women's sports and the other is going to allow biological men into women's bathrooms, dorms, scholarship opportunities, overnight housing accommodations, and safe spaces. So to say that every single school in the United States save a very few handful. And I want your listeners to remember this, even religious schools, mm. with the exception of just a few, are going to be subject to this new rule. So what we've seen now is this panoply of legislation at the state level. 25 states now have said, wait a minute, we have an interest in protecting our girls in safety and equality. We want to make sure that they're safe and there is a level playing field. So they have passed protective women's sports laws. But in the meantime, at the federal level, we think the Biden administration is going to release the new Title IX set of rules in March or April. Now, why is that date significant? Because it gives them enough time to allow Congress to rubber stamp its approval. Congress gets 60 days for any new rule from any federal agency to give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down and then publish it in the Federal Register. And that means by August of this year, Every school in the country who is in receipt directly or indirectly of so much as a dollar of federal funding is going to be subject to the new Title IX rule unless it's stopped by a court of law first. Wow. Let me unthread the needle because I know there were people listening who said, Janet, you better ask this question. You said with a few exceptions after saying even religious schools with a few exceptions, who gets the exception and why? So that's a great question. First of all, uh, at the collegiate level, for example, we know the only higher education institution in the country that does not 
take any federal money, directly or indirectly, is actually Hillsdale College Mm. that has a very close presence with the Heritage Foundation. We do a lot of work with their scholars, and they're a great institution. But for the most part, every other institution does. Now, let me talk a little bit about private schools. Private schools do have a religious exception, but they have already been to court. A series of religious institutions have already been to court to try to fight for the separation of their spaces according to their traditional biblical beliefs. And they've had to fight the Biden administration all the way up to a number of the federal circuits. So they have a religious exercise right, a right to say we're a religious institution. Yes, we take federal funding, but we are tax exempt and we are religious. We shouldn't have to follow this mandate. We've already seen one court in California, another in the Fourth Circuit say, guess what? Even if you're religious, your tax exempt status makes you a recipient of federal funds, and huh. we're going to tag you with Title IX as well. So it's going to affect just about every school student in the country. Well, I, I can hear the cry from the cowboys on the horses right now. Lawyer up! <laughs> That's what's going to happen in the days ahead. Wow. This hour is going very quickly. Sarah Partial perry is with us. She's a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. And let me go back to the Supreme Court when we return, because there's another important case tied into this transgender issue. I've said it. I'll say it again. This is really the tip of the spear against the church. Why? Because it's Satan's way of usurping what God said in his book called Genesis. So we're going to continue to look at the second case that involves parents back after this. of the endless bias spin you hear on mainstream media? On In the Market, we're using God's Word as our guide as we examine today's events. And we want you to be informed and bold about His truth. This is a listener-supported program, so if you value what you hear and you want us to continue on your station, become a partial partner with your monthly support. Call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. Or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Sarah Partial Perry is with us, my daughter, who's a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. And Sarah, take us back up to the steps of the Supreme Court again, because you talked about the fact that there were some cases that they were considering to grant writ of certiorari, which means we'll take up your case. We talked about um, the fact that they're about to go to conference and decide whether or not they're going to take up a case dealing specifically with Title IX. But this is an issue that hits home. And what happens when you've got the school at odds with your position on this or you have an ex-spouse who's in opposition to your position on this? Tell me about another case the high court is considering. This case is one of those, this could certainly never happen to me cases that you would never want to happen to you, but it is happening and it is happening in increasing measure. And what we're seeing is the weaponization of child welfare law and child protective services agencies to remove biological parents of their children because there is a disagreement over the child's gender 
identity. That is not an exaggeration. This has actually happened. And one of the cases that's right now pending in front of the Supreme Court is a case called MC and JC versus Indiana Department of Child Services. Now, what had happened was that Indiana had decided to remove an adolescent boy who had confusion about his gender identity from his mother and father. They were accused of and investigated for uh, child abuse and child neglect in the treatment of their son. They took him out of their custody and prevented them from speaking to their Mm. child outside of therapy sessions. Months later, after doing an investigation of the house, questioning experts, questioning the parents, questioning the child, it was determined, wait for it, that yes, they were indeed fit parents, dropped the child abuse and neglect claims. They did what's called expunging them, but proceeded under a different part of the child protection law and decided they would continue to keep the minor child separated from the biological parents, even though it admitted they were fit parents because of, quote, disagreements, end quote, over the child's gender identity. Well, well wait, this, let me ju- let me jump in. Wow, wow, wow. This is over this is a nightmare story. So, yeah. So they 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 expunge, which means they erase. That that's a horrible thing to be falsely accused of child abuse if you're a parent. But they've still decided that quote in the best interest of the child because there was a disagreement I am assuming between the parents and the child about gender that they wanted yes. to keep the child separate. How old is the child? Was the child the child's 15 years old. This is a boy who believes that he is a girl. And these parents were telling the child, telling the, the minor son, listen, we're going to talk about this. We're going to go to therapy. We're going to be thoughtful. Let's figure out what your counselor has to say about it. Because of that difference, because of their failure to immediately affirm, and the left likes to use an affirm often a firm early approach. Just remember that in ooh, every ooh. context. Danger, want, danger, Will Robinson. You got it. Wow. You got it. If they don't affirm, these are children who are living with their fit biological custodial parents who are still being removed from the home. So you've got these two parents and they're proceeding under pseudonyms, meaning they're they're using these initials because this is so devastating to this particular family that they're really trying to protect what sanctity they have yeah. left. Yep. They can do nothing as of right now to regain custody of their son except to change their affirmation of his gender Identity. Okay, and, and, I, and I, 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 wow. So, um, it, who's representing the child? Department of Social Services. Where? Who? Where, is correct. There a, Indiana. Okay. Indiana Department of Social Services. Okay, so it, this is a 15-year-old at the time. I'm sorry. Is the Indiana Department of Social Services going to take the child to an alcohol store? Uh, are they going <laughs> to register them to vote? Are they going to sign them up for the draft? Because a 15-year-old can't do any of that. But a 15-year-old, apparently in the eyes of the Indiana Social Service Department that's going after these parents, has decided that the child has the wherewithal to decide that they wake up one morning and, abracadabra, I'm not who I am. Yeah. Really, that that that's fanciful. That gives new meaning to flights of fancy, does it not? 
Yes, it absolutely does. These are minor children who can't do things like register for the draft or contract or drink or get a tattoo. Now, there has been a very problematic theory for a while that I won't sort of get down into the weeds on, but the left likes to argue something called the mature minor theory. In other words, yes, about (laughs) that's exactly it. Okay, so they don't have the capacity to register for the army, but they're mature sure enough to know that they want, for example, a voluntary mastectomy and to cut off their healthy breast sure. tissue as young women because they believe that they're boys. Sure. Now, By the way, anybody who's raised teenagers know that today they might have the maturity and next Tuesday they won't. That's the definition of a teenager. Yes. Oh, and and having three of them, I can tell you that the entire parenting journey is fraught with quite a bit of moodiness and changing of perspective from day to day. Yes, but I'm going to score granny points because I plan on telling my grandsons, you called them stinky on the air just for the record. There, there is a there is a statement, uh, an axiom in the law that says hard cases make bad law. But this is one of those situations that is not a hard case. Why? Because it goes not only to the parents' right of freedom of speech, but to their freedom of religion. Of course, these are religious conservative Christians. Of and course. It also, of course it is. And it also goes to the long recognized constitutional right to raise your children as you see fit, something that the Supreme Court first recognized back in 1923, over 100 years ago, in a case called Meyer versus Nebraska. So this should be a slam dunk. Now, what we know procedurally about the case, this case was docketed on October 2nd. It's been rescheduled for conference. Now, I have a theory, and, you know, some of the other attorneys here hate it when I prognosticate, but I like (laughs) prognosticating, and it gives people hope. So what I will say is because this has been rescheduled for conference, sometimes that indicates a little bit of sort of back and forth infighting, but ultimately can reveal itself to be indicative of the court's willingness to settle a hard issue like this. In fact, I will give you a perfect example. The Dobbs decision, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, the big decision overturning Roe versus Wade, that was rescheduled for conference six times. So I'm hopeful that the fact that the court has picked it up and put it down, picked it up and put it down now at least twice, maybe indicates that they understand the stakes are very, very high for American parents and they'll take it up. Particularly when you take a state like California, what looks a whole lot like California when they put this child abuse overlayment on this issue of your gender identity. Remember, we've talked about California trying to say that parents could be charged with child abuse if they don't affirm what their child wants. Well, in practice, this is exactly what Indiana has done. But here's my concern. We still are dealing with wet cement, another working definition of a teenager, impressionable, moldable at this point. So if the child is not allowed to be with the parents, in whose custody is the child? 
the child is currently in foster care oh, with no. affirming parents because remember, the left loves affirm early, affirm only approaches to things like this. And I'll tell you, we've talked about these child welfare laws. This is a new, very frightening battlefield for American parents. And I hope they're all listening right now as we're discussing this. Your willingness to hold fast to biblical truths is now in some states sufficient to charge you with child abuse and neglect. We've already seen, for example, Washington state pass a sanctuary law. So for example, if we live in Virginia and my son decides that he is suddenly a girl at the age of 14 and I say, no thanks, kiddo, we're going to talk about this. We're going to get some therapy. We're going to figure out what it is that's hurting in your heart that needs to be addressed with your counselor. That child, if that child has an escort out of the state or runs away, can be harbored in the state of Washington right now without telling you as the biological custodial parent. So it is very, very dark out here. And the new battlefield, and I think we're going to see this more and more, mm. is child welfare laws and family court. Now we want to use gender identity as a cudgel to break up yes. healthy, yes. happy homes. Oh, boy. All right, parents, gird your loins. This isn't meant to scare you. But it's meant for you to understand exactly why Nehemiah said, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, you fight for your families. This trumpet is blaring. We need to understand this now. But Sarah, you just said it beautifully, that when you get to the core, when we view these the way we do appropriately as followers of Christ, these are spiritual issues. Okay, we believe that you're born male, born female, because to do otherwise is a kind of Nimrod-esque moment where you raise a yeah. fist toward heaven and in rebellion you say to God, you made a mistake, I'll tell you who I am. And that rebellion causes all kinds of problems throughout God's word, and it's a form of rebellion. Now, that's not to negate that these are people who need serious psychological help, but these poor parents are told, what would you rather have, a dead daughter or a live yeah. son? Now, now, that, by the way, you talk about a cudgel, that's a that's a three fifty seven Magnum that's used to silence parents, because the, the data actually shows, by the way, that the suicidal ideation upticks for so many of these adolescents after the surgery, because guess what? It didn't fix what was broken in their heart in the first place. But mom and dad are scared to death, so they acquiesce. Now, number two, if that doesn't work, now we're going to scare you into making sure that you mutilate your child because we don't appreciate your Christian value. We knew it was coming. So just get ready, okay? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. When we come back, Sarah, can you explain the do si -do, change your partner, whatever in the world is happening in Ohio regarding this subject? Back after this. Sarah Partial Perry, excuse me, Sarah Partial Perry is with us, and she is a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, offering, I think, some very clear insight and a biblical perspective on some major issues that are happening in the culture right now that, in truth, at its root, is really very much of a spiritual issue. So it happened between Christmas and New Year's, and I remember watching Governor DeWine in Ohio give his press conference talking about how he was going to override the legislature dealing with a bill that dealt with surgery for uh, minors. Um, now, the good news is we understand that the legislature is going to try to overturn his veto. 
But you wrote a piece that just came out today at the Daily Signal that says the governor was wrong to veto the bill to curb transgenderism. Make your case. Yeah. So he promised that he was going to veto it. Listen, this was actually a very comprehensive bill, and it had very broad bipartisan support from both chambers. And remember, the purpose of representative democracy is to elect people who represent our interests. And we want things where possible being moved through the legislative bodies, becoming law by debating it in an open forum. We do not want our bureaucrats signing off on some interpretation of law that's going to have massive trickle-down effects on the rest of the country. So when this bill was passed, it doesn't just include the surgery surgery bans for minors. It also bans puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones for minors and separates sports in the state of Ohio by biological sex. So it was really a one-two, two very common-sense proposals, both of which are supported up to 70% by the American populace across the ideological spectrum. And his claim was, I have to veto it because I want parents making the decision for their child what's best for the family, and they've been cut out of the equation. We want to protect parents' rights. Well, there's a backstory to that. He was hosted by Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and Cincinnati Children's Hospital Mm -hmm. does gender, quote, Mm -hmm. affirming medical procedures. And what they told him was, listen, we have concerns that this is going to interfere with parental rights to get this kind of treatment if they believe it's necessary. I think, unfortunately, DeWine bought that narrative. He reached for low-hanging fruit and said, okay, okay, here's my compromise. I'm going to sign an executive order only banning these brutalizing, barbaric procedures for minors under the age of 18, but I'm not going to touch women's sports, and I'm not going to touch cross-sex hormones or puberty blockers. So he only went for that one issue because he said, you know, we really do want to let parents make these decisions. I have news for Mike DeWine. Never has a federal court determined that it is medically or legally appropriate for a parent to achieve experimental, barbaristic medical care on which there is no medical consensus. And in fact, while the Supreme Court has never weighed in on this precise issue of a particular type of medical care, the closest we came was in 1998 when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still on the D.C. Circuit. She issued a ruling when a parent wanted to get experimental medical care for his minor daughter on life support, Justice Ginsburg said no. At a certain point, you have to let medicine and the state do what is within their purview. What you want for your daughter is potentially dangerous. That's exactly what we're dealing with here. And this I am hopeful this executive order will ultimately be a thing of the past because now we are hearing, just as you said, notions of a veto override. There is a majority in both chambers that could override this veto and essentially enact this into law whether or not it has the governor's say so. Sarah, that's happened in other states, has it not, where a governor has vetoed probably pressure from special interest groups, but the legislature has overridden the veto. So I I say that because I want our friends to be encouraged. Remember what the founder said, the will of the people is the law of the land. And in the three branches of government, our voice is manifest through the legislative branch. So when the legislature can override one single person's veto, that's democracy in action. 
It absolutely is. And we want issues like this that are very specifically related to issues of medicine, medical licensing, the appropriateness of protecting vulnerable populations. Once again, this is Dobbs versus Jackson all over again. Mm -hmm. That was abortion. This is, quote, gender affirming care. But the premise is the same in both. We want representative legislative bodies to hash these arguments out, to bring in experts to testify, to have conversations in a public forum. We want people to vote their values. Go to the ballot box, represent, find your representative, your state senator, your state delegate who is going to represent the interest, the care of minor children. And when that doesn't happen, it is appropriate in certain contexts for the state to step in and say, listen, we're going to pass this law restricting these procedures because we are confident that medicine needs to be practiced in a way that protects vulnerable individuals like children, and they don't have a voice for themselves. If parents seek what they think is a right to get gender-affirming care, the state has a duty, a right, and an obligation to stand in the and say, we are banning these for minors on all of these particular rationale, including the fact that you're submitting them to irreversible yes. body altering yeah. procedures and they may live to regret it, which we're Seriously. seeing now. And, and it's such a reversal, a twisted reversal of the best interests of the child. By the way, when DeWine signed the executive order, he said thought he thought it was a good idea it's he said and i'm quoting him here i think it's a good way to take this issue off the table and talk about other things that that's being tone deaf culturally by it's, the way this is sure a is. huge issue and then he said this i believe parents not the government should be making these very crucial medical decisions governor dewine i give you the state of indiana all right so if the parents want to make this crucial medical decision no our son is not going to be turned into a girl how would you, if you were the governor of Indiana and not Ohio, affirm the parents' rights there? So this is one of those issues, Sarah, where, where for politicians, I don't care what party they belong to, have to have a principled, courageous position, not an adherence to a special interest group, donor dollars, or even the whims of the party. They're going to have to have principled positions on this if they really are going to be successful, I think, not just as a politician, but as a human being. Last word is yours. Yeah, I've got to say that elections matter, and we are hopeful that people understand that we're playing for big chips now. This is a significant battle for body integrity, for immutable truth, for biblical reality, and we encourage everybody to hold fast. Sex is biological male and female, and parents' rights, I think, are going to be right in the crosshairs this season. Wow, Sarah, what a good word and a reminder that even though the elections are in November, start doing your homework now. Get ourselves prepared so that we do the right thing on Election Day. Thank you, Sarah, for a great conversation. Thank you, friends. We'll see you next time.